The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Our reflections today come from the Epistle to the Galatians, Two sections, chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, and then chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. So hear God's word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And then chapter 3, verse 26 In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's ask God to write this truth on our hearts. Father, We ask that you will help us to see how the wonderful truths of your amazing grace unite us, bring us together as sons of the living God, heirs with Christ, and therefore make all of the other things that make us different irrelevant as we stand before your judgment bar and as we sit at your family table. Father, help us to see how your grace unites us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, said New Englander Robert Frost, poet, actually America's poet laureate in those days. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. Now, Frost died in 1963, so he's not making a comment on 21st century politics, 
or any plans to build a wall about 50 miles south of here. Uh, that was not really directly on his horizon. He was talking about the stone wall in New England that uh, separated his apple trees from his neighbor's pine trees and kept his apple trees from trespassing over and gobbling up his neighbor's pine cones. His neighbor's philosophy, as they did this every spring, walking along the two sides of the wall, putting the boulders back top, his neighbor's philosophy, repeated from his father, was good fences make good neighbors. Good fences make good neighbors. But Frost kept thinking, but my apples are not going to trespass into his pine trees. Why do we need to do this? And actually, of course, he wasn't thinking about a wall between apples, orchards, and pine groves. He was thinking about a wall between people, in fact, just to himself, according to the poem, Mending Wall. Just to himself, he says, before I built a wall, I'd ask what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. He's talking about walls between people. Something there is that doesn't love a wall between people. The Apostle Paul agrees. He says that the something that does not love a wall is the grace of God in Christ. Now we've been seeing in these studies that this amazing grace for which our hearts thirst unmasks us. Our image of okayness, our image of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. And in unmasking us that it embraces us, unmasked as we are, with amazing love forgiving our guilt, robing us in Jesus' righteousness, bestowing blessing, welcoming us as sons, as children, filling our inmost being with the Spirit of God's Son. And this grace breaks down walls in all directions. At Christ's cross, Christ, God's grace demolished the vertical wall, we might say, that our rebellion had erected between us the guilty lawbreakers, and God the holy just judge. And at Christ's cross, God's grace also broke down the horizontal walls that separate Jew from Greek, slave from free, male from female, as we saw here and heard in Galatians 3.28. In fact, Paul elaborates more on this in a letter that he would write somewhat later to the Ephesians, where he alludes to the soreg, that's the fairly low wall or balustrade, about four and a half feet tall, according to Josephus, that separated the inner courts of the temple from area that could be at least walked in by uncircumcised Gentiles. The soreg had big warning signs on it. Actually, there are a couple that have survived. One hole in a museum in Istanbul and another partial one in Israel. And uh, the Greek, not Hebrew, but Greek, so that everybody could read it, the Greek said, no other raced person is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and its enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will surely ensue. That's the wall, at least visually, that Paul has in mind when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He talks to us, Outsiders, uh, you may be able to trace your ancestry.com back to Abrahamic blood, but I can't. I'm pure blood Sweden, uh, so I'm an outsider. Uh, and he talks to us and he says, You Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by what's called circumcision, were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, 
hopeless and godless in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man out of the two and reconcile us both together to God. That wall that kept ritually soiled pagans out of the temple's inner courtyards, Paul says, pictures really the a function of the law of Moses with all of its regulations, not just about morality, but about circumcision and ceremonial cleansing and kosher foods and all the rest, regulations that were supposed to keep Israel set apart from its godless neighbors. And that fencing function of the law, which Paul speaks of so explicitly to the Ephesians, he actually still has in mind, much earlier in Galatians, that function of the law to wall in Israel and wall everybody else out, to answer Robert Frost's question, who am I walling in, who am I walling out? That's what Paul's referring to in Galatians 2 when he talks about rebuilding what I once dismantled. You you heard him talk about this toe-to-toe confrontation he had with Cephas, with Peter. Peter was caught red-handed with craven hypocrisy and religious prejudice. He'd seen the vision that God had demolished the wall between a kosher kitchen and a pagan pork roast. And he'd drawn the right conclusion that God had demolished the wall between Israel and the nations by welcoming uncircumcised, shocking, uncircumcised Gentiles by grace through faith in Christ alone, alone, alone. So he preached to the household of Cornelius. Peter knew that. And uh, when he got back to Jerusalem and got called on the carpet for eating with uncircumcised, dirty people, he just told the story of how God had opened the floodgates. He knew that. Now later, Antioch, under peer pressure, Peter begins to pull back. You hear it, right? He had been eating with the Gentiles, hadn't worried about whether everything had been prepared in a kosher way. But now suddenly... He's pulling back. He's not eating with them anymore. He's sending the signal that believers who were, he knew, were his true brothers and sisters through Jesus the Son were not quite clean enough. Not quite acceptable enough. He started in action to repair the wall that Christ's cross had broken down. Now, in verses 18 and 19 here in, our, in chapter 2, Paul softens the blow a little bit by acting as though he's the one. He himself, Paul, the one tempted to, to rebuild the wall. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. But, of course, he's really thinking of others. And he's saying, if I or anybody tries to reconstruct a wall that makes God's welcome, God's favor contingent on people's performance at these various rules, observing them, then I'm going to find myself on the outside of the wall, not the inside, because after all, I myself have failed miserably to perform well enough to gain entrance into the wall on my own record. God's grace in Christ's cross means I need to leave that wall down. 
God's grace in Christ's cross, applied by Christ's spirit, has the power to reunite us as brothers and sisters and to transcend all creaturely distinctions that would otherwise divide us from one another. That's why Paul focuses in Galatians 3.28 on three demographic divisions that constituted boundaries between privilege and exclusion under the Old Testament and, and of course, in first century Judaism. The boundaries between insiders and outsiders, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, free and slave, male and female. Those boundaries were both legal and religious. Legally, within Israel, those who were Jewish, free, and male had inheritance rights. And that meant a degree of financial security for themselves and their children. As for Gentiles, slaves, and women, well, their roles were to be subservient and their futures were really dependent upon the decisions of free Israelite men to whom they were attached. Gentiles, if Israel had done its job in the conquest, Gentiles would have no property in their name in the land of promise because it was all given to the tribes of Israel. Slaves, Israelite slaves even, who had, because of poverty and bankruptcy, had had to sell their property maybe, and then their, themselves into slavery, uh, had the hope of the year of Jubilee, come around every 50 years of liberation, and even return of property, but that's a, that's a long way off as long as they stayed in slavery, no rights. And women were dependent legally, economically, on their fathers or husbands or sons. Oh, there is the, the great exception of the daughters of Zelopahad, uh, who got their father's inheritance because they had no surviving brothers, but that was the exception that proved the rule, no inheritance. And, of course, religiously, in terms of access into the worshiping community, Gentiles obviously couldn't come in unless they fully converted to Judaism and submitted to circumcision and cleansing. And slaves, well, God said in the Ten Commandments, they better get the Sabbath off. But there's nothing that requires that they're given permission by their masters to come to all the feasts that, uh, that can, when Israel converged at Jerusalem. And, th and then there's women, women whose monthly cycle and then the special times of purification after the birth of a child would exclude them for days every month and sometimes weeks every year from being able to gather in the temple. So it's kind of no wonder that there is an ancient Jewish prayer that encouraged free Jewish men to give thanks to God, quote, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That sounds very racist, and sexist, sounds very arrogant, but in a certain sense, there might be men who could pray that with gratitude. I have freedom to go into the sanctuary of God and worship God. So Paul picks these three pairs samples of the types of distinctions that often divide, and these are, in a sense, all embedded in the ancient scriptures and therefore enacted in first century Judaism. Ethnicity, but also dealing with religious background, economic and personal liberty issues, gender issues. Elsewhere, he talks about other contrasts that are also overwhelmed by the uniting grace of Christ. Romans 1 he talks about Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. So there's a disparity between intelligence and education and cultural development. First Corinthians 
One, he talks about the contrast between the wise and the foolish, the influential and the weak, the well-born, noble, and the despised. So this is just a sample. I suspect if Paul were writing again today, he would go ahead and expand it on out to some of the things that divide people and divide the church in our day. Black and white, Latino and Asian, college professors and custodians, natural born residents and refugees, legal immigrants and illegal aliens, tax-paying homeowners and homeless beggars. Paul says that in one sense, the grace of Christ overcomes all of those divisions, overcomes all of those sources of pride and prejudice and distinction and conflict. And you hear it in Galatians 3, don't you, as he keeps emphasizing all and in Christ, all and in Christ, 326. You are all sons in Christ Jesus, 327. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, 328. No Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but all one in Christ Jesus. And 329, if you belong to Christ, you're all, he doesn't say all, but he doesn't have to by now, right? Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. All who are in Christ, all who are in Jesus the true Israel, the free son, are one in unimpeded access to God through him and confident expectation of inheritance. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Paul does talk here about sonship and he does so not to ignore or to devalue the women in the congregation but instead to focus on the fact that we all are exalted by union with the Son, the Son. So we're all sons. That's the point he's making here. We all have that privilege of access to the Father and inheritance from the Father. In a sense, what Paul is saying is, when God looks at all of us, he looks at us through the lens of Jesus. We've been clothed with Christ. Paul talks about having put on Christ. We've been clothed with Christ, with his seamless robe of righteousness. So we come to God in him, not in the things that make us different from one another. Before his throne, before his judgment seat, justification, at his family table, adoption, what makes us different doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus, the ultimate insider, the beloved son of the Father, endured the curse. We heard that last time, right? Cursed as everyone hanged on a tree. Became the ultimate outsider so that he could bring us in. Bring us into the family. Seat us at the table. Now, Paul's not saying that differences that make us distinct from each other have no significance whatsoever. There, There are still those differences, and they're important. We could go over to Romans 15. We don't have time. And Paul could say, you know, it's really important to you Gentiles that there are Jewish believers in the church. That shows that God is faithful to his promises to the fathers. And then he turns and says, now you Jewish believers, it's really important to you that there are Gentiles in the church because they can glorify God for his mercy and, by the way, show you that whatever God has done in keeping his promises to the Father, it's all mercy, not because he owes you. Slaves, And free, Paul can say, slaves, 
Jesus took the form of a slave. That brings honor. It's important to be a slave that honors God by reflecting Jesus. Husbands and wives, husbands, you get to image Jesus in his sacrificial leadership for his church. Wives, you get to image Jesus in his obedient, submissive, in his obedient submission to his father, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. And taking his humanity, he becomes submissive to the father. So unlike ancient Gnostics and postmodern egalitarianism, Egalitarians. Paul is not suggesting that we kind of pretend that there aren't differences among us, that we can or should ignore all the created or socially constructed distinctions between people, that we close our eyes and pretend that our skin color or our native language or our cultural customs or gender or economic standing have been erased from our identity. His point is, before God's bar of justice, and at God's family table, we're all together in the sun. Those differences should not be confused, though they're there. The differences between us should not be confused with any believer's personal value in the eyes of God or any believer's access to intimate communion with God. If what makes you different from somebody else leads you to imagine that it sets you apart before the bar of God's justice or around the family table of God. If you think that, then the good news of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has not gotten deep enough down into your hearts to affect how we think and how we relate to the ones around us. One claim often made by the proponents of the new perspective on Paul is that the reformers got Paul pretty much completely wrong. Uh, they thought Paul was concerned about the issue of how a guilty individual can get right with God. And NPP folk know that Paul's real concern was churchly and communal. How can Gentiles get into the covenant people of God? Sometimes, especially maybe in a month like this, we may be tempted to assume their dichotomy but answer back, no, no, it's all about how an individual gets right with God. But if we read Paul deeply, Paul is saying it's about both. It's about how an individual gets right with God, no matter whether they're insiders or outsiders. It has to be on the strength of Jesus' obedience and his sacrifice received by faith alone. And for that reason, it has communal and it has churchly implications because we all stand together in Christ. The church will never be healed of its divisions by denying these core truths of the gospel. What we need is the Spirit's grace to connect the dots between the amazing grace that we celebrate and in which we rest, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and our attitudes toward and treatment of sisters and brothers from every race and economic class, every political stripe, every social status, even those who stand across the room from us in some theological convictions, if they really trust Jesus. We need a new submission of heart and mind to all that God has spoken in, this, in the scriptures and, and to the implication of justification for our unity in Christ. 
bear with me just another minute. Hear John Owen, one who stood for truth, valiant for truth, in his book on schism says, I confess that I would rather, much rather, spend all my life and day, all my time and days in making up and healing the breaches and schisms that are amongst Christians than one hour in justifying our divisions, even those wherein on the one side they are capable of a fair defense. For who is sufficient for such an attempt? I love this next line. The closing of differences amongst Christians is like opening the book in Revelation. There is none able or worthy to do it in heaven or in earth but the Lamb. When he will put forth the greatness of his power for it, it shall be accomplished and not before. In the meantime, a reconciliation amongst all Protestants is our duty and practicable, and had perhaps ere this been in some forwardness of accomplishment, had men rightly understood wherein such reconciliation according to the mind of God doth consist. When men have labored as much in the improvement of the principle of forbearance as they have done to subdue other men to their opinions, religion will have another appearance in the world. Now you know Owen is not saying we don't argue for important theological truth. That's not at all his point. But he's saying we also need to treasure speaking truth in love and truth for the sake of our unity. Restoring our unity is really, as he says, the work that only the Lamb can do. Yet we have our callings to cultivate patience and humility and to prefer others over ourselves, especially to honor those who may differ much from us in one way or another, but who share our same Savior. That's the fruit of God's grace, grace that unites us, which again, makes us thirsty for grace, because only he can do this, that we honor and embrace the wide spectrum of God's family, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Please join your hearts with mine in prayer. Father, Father, Abba Father, what a privilege it is for us together in this one language of the world to address you in this way as your children, your sons, men and women, sons in union with the Son can address you in the vast array of human languages, Abba, Father. Father, teach us in our thoughts about those who differ from us. Teach us the reality of the re reconciling grace of the cross that has broken down the walls that make us think we might be superior to others, broken down the walls of separation, that you've welcomed us together through Jesus, through Jesus' blood and righteousness. Make us children of the Reformation who live into the reality of the solace that we confess in our relationships with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.
You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.